0: Thank you so much for inviting me, and in particular I want to thank you for inviting me on Asarabhatevet. And I'm really especially appreciative of this because it really forced me to give a lot of thought to this day. And I'm not sure if you're like me, but very often Asarabhatevet doesn't seem to hit me until the day actually hits. and I don't think I'm alone, um, because I think there's a lot of reasons why we seem to kind of forget about Asar Abba Tebet. These are my top three. Um, first of all, Rosh Chodesh Tevet is right in the middle of Hanukkah, and we tend to be very preoccupied and enjoying all the Simcha of Hanukkah, and when Asar Abba Tebet actually happens, it's like, oh yeah, right, I forgot, we were in Tevet, because when Rosh Chodesh came, I was still doing Kislev. Literally, until this Arab Shabbat, the menorahs were in my house were all still out. So that the Rosh Chodesh, which usually for me is a reminder of getting ready for that next event, gets kind of covered up by Hanukkah. Um, another reason I think is because we have four fast days about the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And we tend to save, I mean, we have Tishabav, Shavasar Batamus, Zom Gedaliah, and Asarabat Hevei. And we tend to save most of our energy for tishabav B'Av, um, which has also the most rituals that force us to focus on the day. And since Shavasar starts off that three-week period, I think that also gets some of our energy. But um, Asar Abhatevet gets kind of lost in, in the middle there. You know, we're doing tishabav we're doing Shavasar Bhattamus. Um, we kind of lose Asar Abhatevet. And I think also the more worried we are about the fast the more attention we pay to it. You know, certainly this equation works, I think, for Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur, because for weeks we go around anticipating the fast. Um, I'm so worried. How am I going to make it? It's so hard. But the truth is, Sarabha Tehbet is not really so hard. You know, it, it comes out at that time of year where the days are very short. So really you can kind of do it. You know, I know my husband woke up this morning to eat breakfast, and the fast will be over by 5 something. So you're kind of like just missing lunch, so we don't have to anticipate for those weeks before how is this gonna be. Um, But in fact, I think that um, Asarab Tehveit is really considered both halakhically and philosophically a very serious fast. So I'd like to explore some of those themes today. Um, The first source I wanna show you, if you take a look at the source book, um, is a halakhic source, although it doesn't play out practically, um, that speaks to the seriousness and the severity of the day. Okay, there we go. Um, this is, the source is in the Birke Yosef, and um, he explains about Asar Betevet, Im Chalul bet Shabbat, if what would happen if Asar Betevet fell out on Shabbat. Now, it, doesn't, it never happens, so it remains in the theoretical realm and not a practical question, but what would happen if Asar B'tevet actually fell out on Shabbat? So he quotes from the Beit Yosef, Katav Mishum, who quotes from the Abu Draham, that if Asarabat B'Tevet, Im Shabbat, lo If actually fell out on Shabbat, we would not push it off, like we do for all the many of the other fast days. Uh, right? And the connection is, how do we know that? Because like Yom Kippur, right, which is also not a nircha, and is spoken about with the term on that very day, so, too, when Asar Abatei the date is spoken about to Yecheskel, when Hashem tells his Navi Yechezkel, the, um, the Navi at the time of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash in Babel, in the diaspora, who was already previously exiled, he speaks about Asar Abatei with that same language of Be'etzam Hayom Hazat. So, halakhically, even though this doesn't play out practically, it speaks to the fact that it really is a very serious fest. Um... So I think our goal will be, uh, my, our goal will be today to, A, understand what happened on Asar Abitavain in its context in its own time period, and also then understand why these events are meaningful for us today. And so let's first discuss briefly what exactly happened on Asar Abitavain. So if you take a look at the second source, um, you can read this, you'll be able to read this account in um, Malachin, which will give you, which gives more of the narrative um, of the events, or you'd also be able to read it in Yirmiyahu, which is more prophetic, but actually at this, in the description of the Korban, it goes into more of a narrative um, style, but we're going to take a look at Malachin because it actually cites the date, so this is source number two. Okay, Vayimlech okay. Melech Babel et Metanya, Dodo, taftav Vayesev et Shemot Sidkiyahu. So at this point, and this is really right before um, Tzidkiyahu ruled for the 11 years, before the destruction of Bayat Rishon, the first temple. So at this point, the king of Babel came. He deposed the king of King Jehoiachin because he was not loyal to Babel as they had expected, and instead put Tzidkiyahu, the son of Yoshiahu, um, as the king. Um, and called, to, he changed his name to show that we're in control. Babel is in control. You, Tzidkiyahu, are not really making the decisions here. Um, so, Ben Esrim, Shana, Shana, Malach, So, he ruled for 11 years in Yerushalayim. And then we get a little bit of his history. Let's skip to the next passob. So, like the previous king who ruled for a significant amount of time, who was Yehoiachin, Yehoiachin, who preceded him, ruled actually only for three months before Babel decided to get rid of him. So like really the previous substantial king of Yehuda, of Judah, um, he also did wrong in the eyes of Hashem. Ki al'af Hashem um, haitab yushalayim u'b'yudah, ad yishlicho otam me'al panav v'yimro tzidkiyahu bemalach Babel. So God was angry at Yushalayim and Yehuda for everything that they had done because they turned away from him and Tzidkiyahu Tzidkiyahu decided to rebel against the king of Babel. Um, And here's where we get our date. It was in the ninth year of Tzidkiyahu's ruling which is Tevei on the tenth day of the month who the whole chelo Al um, So on this day of um, the king of Babel came, him and all of his armies, they came against Yerushalayim and they built the siege around Yerushalayim This siege lasted but um, we can see in the next Pasuk, Bataboha Irba And this siege lasted until the 11th year of Tzitkiyahu, which was the the year that Tisha occurred, that the Beit HaMittash was destroyed and the Beit HaMittash was destroyed. So that kind of gives us the historical perspective of what exactly happened on that day. That was the day that the siege was built by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies around Yushalayim. Now, the first reference we have to that day being commemorated by a fast day comes from Zechariah. Now Zechariah um, was Zechariah was a navi of the um, post the Khorban after the destruction, when the people had already um, when the Jewish people after those seventy years that they were subservient to Babel, outside of Israel, then came the shivat Zion, the return to Yerushalayim, and the rebuilding of the second Beit Hamikdash. And the primary Neviim at that time were Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And then a dilemma appears for the people, comes up for the people, right? They've already built, or they're in the process, certainly, of having made significant strides in the rebuilding of the second Beit HaMikdash. And then they start to wonder, well, we have all of these days to remember the the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash, and... We have in, do we still need to commemorate them now that we've rebuilt it? We have a Beit HaMekdash again. So we have all these established days. Do we still need to hold on to these days? And it's certainly a very relevant question, you know, for our own exploration of, you know, having the state. We, don't, we certainly don't have the state of, um, we don't have the Beit HaMekdash, but we have made certain strides, and the question certainly resonates with us. Um, so this is the first, I, I wanna highlight this, there's actually a lot to talk about in this source, and we're not gonna delve into every aspect of it, um, but I, it's, I wanna show, show you from this that there were days, this is our reference, that there were days that were set aside post the korban to commemorate. Um, because before this, really, we only had, um, you know, we had Yom Kippur, but this idea of this communal fast to remember tragic events in our history. Okay, so um, let's take a look at Zechariah, per Zion. Vayhi um, arba, so This is the fourth year of, the, of King Daryavesh. Hayad so davar Hashem el-Zechariah, This is kislev. Um, now, the, the importance of this date is that there was already, you know, they had already started rebuilding for almost two years, so there was significant progress. The Beit HaMikdash was almost completed. So now they're starting to wonder. Okay, but... Um, and this is a list of names, Beit El, Sar Etzer, V'reg'a Melech, Va'anshav, Lechalo et Pnei Hashem. So they came to ask this question, to seek out this question from God. Leimor el ha-Kohanim, Asher lebein Hashem Tzvako, Ve'el han-Nvi'im leimor. They want to question, they ask their question from the Kohanim and the Levim. Ha'evkeh b'chodesh ha-Khamishi, Hina-Zer, Asher asit So their question is, should we still fast? On, these, um, on this fast day, so this is here. They're asking, that Nissan ERC van Tammuz Av." So they're asking, should we still keep Tisha like we've done for the past number of years since the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash? Now that we already have number two, So Hashem responded by saying, "And more el kol Am um, ha'aretz ve'el Right, speak to the people and to the Kohanim, saying, Kit usafod ani." When you fasted on these dates of chamishi and the did I fast also along with you? Meaning, this is you. This is your initiative. And he continues, Just like when you choose to eat, that's also your choice, that you're choosing to eat. Um, okay, um, i just think if I should... Conti- okay, so then he continues to say, We'll we 9 now. Could be just a nut. So the source continues. I'm not going to read through the whole source. And Hashem's answer is certainly very obscure. It's not clear exactly what he's saying. But he seems to be saying afterwards, "Listen to this." Is from Pasuk Zion. Listen to the words that I always told the naviim. The Navim harishonim there is not referring to what we usually think of as Navim rishonim you know, in the books, Yoshua Shoftim to Molochim, but he's saying, the earlier neviim, like Yishayahu, like Yermiyahu, remember what I said to them before Yishalayim was destroyed? Everything I said to them really is the, is the core, is the key. I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this source because it is a complicated source, but and maybe we'll come back to it because it is relevant to what we're about to explore, but Hashem's point is don't get stuck on the fast. You know, it's a very important point of neviim machronim. You know, the fast, the key is are you doing tuba? Are you doing the key messages that i 've always spoken to your Miyahu and Yeshayahu? that 's the most important question you should be ask, asking yourself and whether or not you should fast that 's a good question. We have to think about that, but don 't get lost in the fast you know the fast the ritual is not um, the end all and be all' we'll see this actually ties in with where we 're going maybe we 'll come back to it, but um, but what I wanted to show you is that this is the reference we learned from Zechariah, that the people are saying, we do have these days. post by Rishon, we, we decided that we're going to do this. We're going to take these days that were tragic for the Jewish people, and we're going to establish them as communal fast days. And the fourth source in the Tosefta ex- says that very clearly. He, he quotes Zechariah, and he says, it quotes Zechariah, and it says, Hare Uomer, ko Hashem, betzom ha-revi'i, betzom asiri Som harivi e Batamus, So the fast of the fourth month, right? Nisan ear sibuntamuz, that Shabbasur Batamus, because that was the day that the walls were breached. Somha Khamish Zotishab, that's the ninth of Ab. Yomsha Nisrabo Beit Hamikdash, because that was the day that the Beit Hamikdash was actually burnt. Soum Hashfi'i, Zeshloh Shabatishrei. The fast of the seventh month, that's Gimel Tishrei. Yom Shnei Ragbo Gedalia Ben Achikam, Shargov Yishmael Ben Netanya. Um, that's the day that Gedaliah was killed, So Gedaliah, by Ishmael ben Netanya. Here he gives a little bit of an explanation why should we fast for that, um, which is a whole other fascinating topic with many, many answers. Um, and here the Tosefta is explaining that it's because the death of a Tzadik, like Gedaliah is as difficult before God, like the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And we have sort of this, which you see in other um, Midrashic sources, and that this equivalency between a person's life and Torah or uh, institution of Torah. Um, and Tzom HaAsiri, za Asara b'teveh. So the Tzom, the fast of the 10th month, this Asarabatevi, um Yom Shebo Samach Babel Ed Yado Ali That was the day that the King of Babel so rested his hand against Ushalayim um Shana Amar, then he gives a number of sources from Yicheske and Malach to show that this was the day that this all began. Okay, so we have, so we have from, from Malachim we have the rep, the date when it actually happened, and then from Zechariah, also as explained by the Tosefta, we have the idea that the people after Tishabav, after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, the people sat down together and said, how do we commemorate it, and that's when this fast was established. But I, I still want to come back to our core question, which is that if we already have above and we already have Asarabba TV, isn't it overkill for another date? Um, and especially because this was really only the beginning of a process that stretched out over a year and a half before the end of the First Temple period, before the destruction. So why do we need that beginning date also? Um, now, in order to understand this question... What I'd like to explore is some of the problems of the time period um, and we'll use the nevuot of Yirmiyahu, we'll jump between a number of sources, um, who was the prophet in this critical crunch time period before the Foriban, who was so desperately trying to save the people from their fate um, as a window to try to answer this question about what specifically about Asarabh Teveh, the tenth day of Teveh, is so meaningful for us. Um, so let's take a look first at um, Zion Yirmiyahu. Um, since this is really Yeremiah's, it's really his pivotal nebuah, um and a, where he sheds light on what exactly is going wrong. Okay, so I'm just going to use my Tanakh, but it's it next in the sources. Okay. Now, in Yirmiyahu Paragzayin, what comes out is that many of the crimes that Yirmiyahu is holding the people of his time to task for are not new crimes. It's not something that we haven't seen before. I just want to give you a few examples. If we'll take a look at three Psukim. If you take a look at Pasuk Hei, turns to them and he says, he's, this is a real call to tshuva, you know, do tshuva to save yourself. And he says, Ki'im teitivu et um, if you improve your ways and your actions im if you start to do justice between man and his friend, man and his peer, right? don 't oppress um, the convert, the orphan, the widow, and don 't spill innocent blood in this place and don 't follow after um, gods that are you know um, don't follow after other gods, right? And and he continues also in pasuk tet. If you skip to pasuk tet for a minute, he goes through a long list of sins where he seems to where he goes through really all the big ones in the asheret hadibro and kind of turns them on their head. Seach, rotsayach vinoeif vishavala sheker vekiter labaal. And bahola, the, you steal, you kill, you commit adultery, you swear falsely, and you worship of So he really, in Parak Zion, really comes down hard on the people of this time period. Right, the people living. This Nivu is said at the time of Yehoiakim, so the king who preceded, um, you know, for again for a substantial amount of time, who preceded Sidkiyahu. So we're talking about you know twenty or so years before the. Um, so he's, he's coming down hard on all the things that they did wrong, that they now have this critical time period to improve. And I think having taught this also to, um, to high school students when they learn, you know, for a number of years, sometimes they're like, well, what's the difference between... All these different Nevi'im, you know, Yeshayahu, Yermiyahu, they all really say the same thing. And I think that's really one of the challenges of teaching Nevi'im Akronim to understand what's different about each Navi and what's different about each time period. Um, but here, the truth is that, no, yes, this is the same call that you would hear from Yeshayahu. It, uh, it's the same call that you'd hear from all those Nevi'im Rishonim, as they're referred to in Zachariah. and And yes, that's what we hear about social justice and also Abu Dzerra, we heard that before. So this part is really, his call to Chuba is really very similar to all the, uh, to all the other Naviim that preceded him. But the big difference here is that something that should have been an asset became one of Yirmiyahu's biggest challenges. And this was something that happened at the very beginning, I'm right, preceded Yirmiyahu, that happened at the very beginning of Yirmiyahu's career as a prophet, which was the religious reformation at the time of Yoshiyahu. Because Yoshiahu, the king who preceded Yehoiakim, he led a huge religious reformation. Um, I'm skipping really the three-month kings just to. Uh, um, so the people at the time, to- um, and he led a huge religious reformation. At that time, no one went to the Beit Hamikdash. The Beit Hamikdash was a mess. People were distant. They didn't under- They didn't know Torah. They weren't learned. And what Yoshiyahu did when he found, right, when he decided to clean out the Beit HaMikdash, and startlingly they found a Torah scroll, and they were able to, and Yoshiyahu recognized what the mission of the Jewish people was and how distant they were from it, so Yoshiyahu led a huge religious reformation where he got rid of Avodah Zarah, and he taught Torah so the people became more learned and familiar, they were so distant at that time. And he brought them back to the Beit HaMikdash, they weren't going. It was a mess. So this happened at the beginning of Yirmiyahu's career, and this should have been awesome. But it turned out by the end to become Yirmiyahu's greatest obstacle, because the people at Yirmiyahu's time period thought that they were religious. And once the essence, the core, right, their, their real connection internally started to disintegrate, but they were still really keeping up those externals, and they were still going to the Beit HaMikdash, whenever they heard Yirmiyahu's nebuot, they blocked it out because they said, "Who are you talking to? Look at me! I'm the Tamar Acham. I'm the person who dabbles three times a day. So why are you telling me to change? I'm there. We made it. So what should have been his asset, his biggest asset, really became the major obstacle at the end of um, at the end of this time period, really leading up to the Korban. Um, and." I just want to show you a few psukim that highlight this and make Parag Zion different. It's for example, if you look back at the beginning of Parag Zion, look where Yirmiyahu was speaking. Hadavar This this is what Hashem, um, this is what, um, what Hashem spoke to Yirmiyahu, saying, Et Hadavar Go stand at the entrance of the Beit Hamikdash, and that's where you should prophesy. Now usually, when you want to get people to, in our language, go to shul, you've got to meet them at their, where they're hanging out. But here the people are actually going to the Beit HaMikdash. And he says, listen, shimu Hashem ko Yehuda habaim Hashem. listen to me, all the people of Yehuda who are coming to these gates, in order to bow down to Hashem, in order to worship Hashem. Right, and then he goes on. If you improve your ways, then I will rest in this place. Yes, you are coming to this place. And yes, this place is called the Beit Hashem. But I'm not there right now. Right? When you're not there, you're only there in body. I'm not there either. So don't, his message is don't fool yourself just because you're keeping the rituals. Don't fool yourself into thinking that that's what it's all about. Um, and, and he continues, and we're going to explore this in a minute. Don't believe the Neviye Sheker, Altiv Techulachah, and the Eddib Re the false prophets who are saying, Hashem, Hashem, Hashem hima, that God's resting place is right here, that God is here with us. He's not. We got the building. But the, the essence of Hashem Shekhinah, that's not there anymore. And he continues also, the the Beit HaMittash is also leading you astray by thinking, if you look at Psukim Tet and Yud, 9 and 10, he says, We read this one before, But you continue to do all these terrible things. And then what happens? Then what do you do? You come, You stand before me in this house, and you say, we're saved. The fact that we're coming here, now we're forgiven for everything that we did. Because, hey, we showed up to the Beit HaMikdash, so we're forgiven. So we go go back to the Beit HaMikdash in order to allow us to continue to sin, because that's like our indulgence you know, to use a historical term. Like, that's what we need to do in order to be forgiven, and then we can continue to sin. So what ends up happening um, is that the the people's outer religious expression sways them from really paying attention to Yirmiyahu's message. And as time progresses and the people continue to reject Yirmiyahu's message and resist the call to change, his message evolves also. And at this point, at, at, at the later point, their tshuva now becomes, part of their tshuva becomes submitting to Babel as the superpower and becoming subservient to them while remaining in the land of Israel. And if they do this, they'll be allowed to stay in Israel because the political message is really a religious message. And part of their tshuva is recognizing that they've done so much damage that for a short amount of time, they can stay in the land but they've no longer earned the right to be in control. And the people continue to reject this message religiously and politically. Right? They don't change their ways, and they also continue to deny the possibility that Babel will rule over them. It still seems impossible. Right? If we have the land, then there's, our, our assumption is that it's ours no matter what. We can never lose it. Um, and one of the biggest obstacles to change at this time were the prophecies of the Nevi'e Sheker. And the most famous one is the showdown between Yirmiyahu and Chananiah Ben Azor. So I want to take a look for a minute at Yirmiyahu Perik Chavchet, which I think should be the next source, um, in order to highlight the confusion of this time period, right? why it was so easy almost to ignore Yirmiyahu's message. Um, so if you take a look at Yirmiyahu Perich Havchet, um he starts out, but it's the the, the story starts out. Um, Right. As before we read it the, the big the one, the obstacle was that the prophecies of the false prophets were just so much more appealing right? the prophecies of the false prophets were A, you guys are awesome you're perfect, stay exactly as you are look, isn't this great that we've had this religious reformation and we're there and B, the second piece of it was that the Beit Hamikdash and the land are ours, no matter what. He said, and "We're never going to lose it." Okay, so let's just take a look how this plays out for the people. And Parakafchet is really one of the most dramatic um, moments in Yirmiyahu's life, where Yirmiyahu has an audience and he's fighting, he's debating with Hananiah ben Azor, a very popular false prophet at the time. Okay, so take a look. He says, Mamlechet rivii Okay, so this is in Tzidkiyahu's reign in the fourth year. So we know Tzidkiyahu ruled 11 years before the destruction. So this is really right before you know, getting to that critical time period before the destruction. Okay. So Hanania approaches Yirmiyahu in front of everybody. In front of the Kohanim, in front of the people, for a public debate about what to do. Um, ko amar Hashem tzvakot elokei Yisrael now this is the prophecy of Hananiah ben Azor, the false prophet and what the false prophets would do what they would preface, like a true prophet they would preface their remarks with language of ko amar Hashem this is what God said and so both Neviim were standing in front of the people saying this is God's message so Hananiah starts and says shibarti et ol melech babel right? babel is the rising superpower, Babylonia and and, and Hanani said, God spoke to me and he said, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylonia. In two, in two years, I'll return to this place back to Shalayim and to the Beit HaMikdash all of the caitlin of the Beit HaMikdash that Nebuchadnezzar had already taken out and brought to Babel. In two years, everything will be reversed. Yes, there's been a minor gullu, but that's not really where things are going because there was a, short, a smaller gullu, a smaller exile of some of the people prior to the ultimate exile. So Khanania's message is that everything is working itself out. God is happy with you. Babylonia is going to be overpowered. Don't worry. Don't worry, and therefore don't change. Right? And he continues in Pasuk Dali to say that the king who was exiled, Yehoiachin, who Babel deposed after he ruled only three months, um, will also return. So everything that was already taken away by Babylonia will come back. Now Yirmiyahu responds, Yirmiyahu, I, I think when, when I read this, I think Pasuk Vav is a very telling Pasuk about Yirmiyahu because Yirmiyahu hears these Nebuot where Hananiah is promising all these amazing things to the people and he's promising them that all the struggles that they've experienced so far are about to end. And you should see the emotion in Pasuk Bav when Yirmiyahu says, "Va'yomer Yirmiyahu Hanavi, kenya ase Hashem, amen. I, please, Hashem should do this. When Yirmiyahu hears Hananiah's nevuot, he says, I wish, I wish this was the case. When I hear this, I want this to happen as much as you do. And he says, I want God to do all those things that you promised. I want Hashem to return King Yehoiachim. I want Hashem to return all the Kalim of the Beit HaMikdash. But that's not the reality anymore. But what he what he says here, you can almost picture the pain in his voice. It stinks to be the Navi who's always giving the bad news. I wish I could agree with what you're saying. I wish that this would happen. I wish that the denial that you guys are living was actually reality. But then he continues with, I think, three very key Sukum and but Why is this not true? And how should you, the audience, who are listening to me, Yirmiyahu, the true Navi, as well as Hananiah ben Azur, the false Navi, how should you know who's really right? So I want to look at Zion through Tet for a minute, because that's really a key to understanding this battle between the true prophets and the false prophets, and to understand why the people really should have known that Yirmiyahu was the true prophet. I'm going to explain them, I think, in a way that I've heard Rabbi Angel, Rabbi Chaim Angel explain it, and I think it lends a lot of meaning to this debate. He says, but Yeram Yahu says, But listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The, the Nebiyim that came before me, from ancient times,. Notice that most of the Navim that came before me, the true prophets here, because false prophets has always been, was always a problem at the time of prophecy they always are prophesying all these terrible things, right? Most of the Nevi'im spent a lot of their time warning the people about war and about um, terrible things that were going to happen and about sickness. And I think that's really why, one of the reasons why it's so hard to read the Nevi'im Machronim. They're just, the prophecies are so difficult and so negative, so he says, yes, I recognize that the Nabiim that came before me were also incredibly negative. The prophecies felt so always are so dire. But why is that? And then he goes on, we're going to come back to him in a second, in, in Pasuk tet, and he says, Hanavi Ashery Nave Lishalone, but a Navi who gives you a message of peace, that Navi who has that rare, positive, peaceful prophecy, bivodabar hanavi. If a Navi tells you something that's going to happen to you that's good, we only believe him after that actually comes true. So, what he's saying here is that the burden of proof is on the Navi who's promising you something positive. That's the Navi who has to prove it to you. And this is a famous, the um, Rambam discusses this in detail, that if a Navi says something that will happen, it, he needs to, It's a positive Navuah, it has to come true before we can believe that Navi. But what about the naviim who said that all these negative things were happening? Why do we believe them? Um, so the reason is because a Navi is a change agent. Because the goal of a Navi is not really to tell you the future But the goal of the Navi is to bring about change. And the purpose of the Navi of prophet, is to get you to improve your ways. So since the Navi cares about you, he's going to tell you what could happen to you if you stay like you are and you don't change. So if a Navi comes and tells you to change, you should believe him because he's trying to improve you. He's out for your best interest. But if a Navi comes and promises positive things, then we don't know if it's true until it comes true. But if someone's coming to tell you to change, it's not that I hate you. On the contrary, I love you. I care about you. That's why I'm telling you to change. I feel like I tell this to my kids all the time. <laughs> I don't know if they uh, get it. But the point is when you care about someone, you try to improve them. Right? You go, you're, and, and they're not always receptive to that message. But the idea is that if I care about you then I'm going to tell you. Um, I should, uh, think about this also not just as a parent, but also as a teacher, you know, for example, let's say um, if a student is doing really poorly, uh, you know, at a certain point in the semester, so as a teacher, you know, and in many ways, as a teacher, you could, you know, I could, a teacher could step back and not get involved and say, okay, whatever, let's see, maybe things will work out. But Someone who really cares is going to step in and try to change things. Someone who cares is going to say, let's talk about it. Let's see where things will go if we continue down this path. Let's see how we can change it. Because care and concern is always expressed in improvement. right? And that improvement should be in a positive, certainly in a positive way. But when we care about people, that's when we try to improve them. If we don't care about someone, then okay, they can do whatever they want to do, and whatever happens then them will happen. But certainly, I think in, in, the, in the example of just our own children, that's where it really hits home, just that that's the most, you know, the people that we care about the most, that's why we're always, uh, you know, trying to make it the best and trying to really bring about change when change is necessary. I like with the people doesn't always work, <laughs> just like for the, the parallels also. Um, but you're is giving the people the key to knowing who to believe during this confusing time. So if someone comes to tell you to improve, you should believe him, and especially in light of the fact that if you're honest in your self-evaluation and you're not caught up only in external expressions, these, this guidance will ring true. So the people really have the key, um, have the key to understanding and to moving forward and bringing about the change that your miyahu is warning them of. But the truth is, it was really difficult to accept that Navua when the other alternative just was so positive. Um, and I think the neviim themselves, just to highlight how difficult it was to make this choice at this time, I think the neviim themselves struggled with this. You know, how you see from Yermiahu's Amain, Kenya Sasham, I wish God would keep this. I was actually just reading over Shabbos and Ravening Lau has a book on Yirmiyahu and when he explains that parak, he actually says um, I'd never seen this this perspective before, but he said that that was actually a mistake. Yirmiyahu shouldn't have said that. It was too revealing a comment because it, that could have led the people astray to say, "Look, even Yirmiyahu is saying like I wish this is true." And he's saying Amen after hearing this. So he actually said that that was Yirmiyahu. Even if he felt that, he shouldn't have revealed that to the people because it was just too revealing. It it it, it kind of gave them an opening. So that was an interesting perspective. I'd never seen that before, but I certainly think that the nevi'im themselves struggled with this. And in fact, um, maybe that's why the nevi'im, like Yermiyahu, had to do so many signs, you know, their own signs, like Yermiyahu doesn't go to the house of mourning, he doesn't go to funerals, he wears certain clothing, because he has to teach the people what's coming, and he also has to internalize it himself, because it was so difficult for the nevi'im themselves to believe this catastrophe that was about to happen to them if they didn't change. Um, this also came out for me, I'll just in, in another meaningful way in the classroom. Um, when we were learning par- when I was learning par- um Zion with an 11th grade class, we tried this technique um, called Bibliodrama. Has everyone, anyone ever done that or heard about it? Um, it's called Bibliodrama. And what you do is you try to speak in the voice of the people in the story. So, but not in, I think we tend to like to talk about, you have to talk as if you are, it's very hard, but you speak for the characters. So one of the people that we tried to be um, was Yirmiyahu. And we all, myself included, tried to speak as if we were Yirmiyahu. And very interesting insights came out, um, and, this, and everyone, the students started speaking by saying, you know, it's so hard to give this prophecy, Um, when he's about to go to Beit Hashem and give them that very difficult prophecy of Parag Zion, you know, I'm scared about what the other Nevi'im are going to do to me, I'm scared about how the people will respond, and then I remember one student um, continued, like they have to continue each other's thoughts, said, I'm also scared to even say this, because what if I say it and that makes it true, and what, how can I even utter these prophecies, and I think it really spoke to, it was such a moment of insight, like everybody paused, but I think it spoke to the fact that even the Nevi'im struggled with be, having to say these things, that the Beit HaMikdash would be destroyed, and having to utter these very, very difficult prophecies. It was a struggle even for the Nevi'im. Um, now, Asar B'tevet, though, was the day that everything changed. Because until Asar some things had happened. Babylonia had be- become the superpower. There were, you know, they had removed things from the Beit HaMikdash. They had exiled certain people. But until Aserah everything was basically still in place. But Aserah was the day that everything changed. Because Aserah was the day that all of the negative nevuot that Yerimehu predicted started to actually happen. Right? That was the day that you couldn't hide anymore. Everything he had said actually played out. So I'll just give you an example. Yerimehu's very first nevuah, right? In Parak Alice. Um, I don't think this is on your source sheet, but I just want to read it to you because it's, it's, it's just quite literally what happens. The very, in his first Nebuah, right, he first he sees the Makel Shaked, um, the almond branch, and then afterwards Hashem shows him a vision. This is the very first, very first vision that he sees. Um, and I, I, Sorry, you don't have this, but I'll read it to you. In Pasuk Yugimel it says, in Paragallit, Vayhi davar Hashem elai sheni leimor. So Yirmiyahu is telling us what happened, and the word of Hashem came to me a second time, saying, "Ma ataro'eh? What do you see, Yirmiyahu? Right, what, what do you see? Omar, and I said, "Sir nafuach ani ro'eh. I see a steaming, bubbling pot. Right? We all remember Yirmiyahu and the bubbling pot. Upanav nifneitzafona, and its tip to the north. Omar Hashem Eli, and Hashem here is training Yirmiyahu, but also telling him what's going to happen." From the north, which is where Babylonia is, that's where the evil will come. I'll call on all the people. But now listen to the next Pasuk. Pasuk te, um, um, in Pasuk Tedvav. Because I will call to all of the people of the northern kingdom, Uba'u, and they will come. And each person will take their chair and put it around the gates of Jerusalem. And around the walls that surround Yehuda, And around all the cities of Yehuda. So the very first Nebuah Yerim has is when he tells them there will be a siege by the northern kingdom of Babylonia. He predicted this. And Asara B'teved is the day that all of those negative nivuot, all of the negative prophecies, start to happen. And this is the moment that everything should have become clear, right? As all. And as all the negative nivuot start to come true, this is where the people should have recognized that the stubborn refusal to see the truth is now over. I can't hide from it anymore. Your miyahu's nivuot are happening. The negative prophecies of what will happen if we don't change are actually, word for word, playing out before our eyes. But what happens after Asara Sarabhateve? What happens in that next year and a half before the korban, and that year and a half before Shabbat or Batamas, when the gates are breached. So briefly, right in two instances, we have the people turning to Yirmiyahu for guidance. They say, pray for us. Right, this is at the time of Tirkiyahu. We have two instances where the people come to Yirmiyahu and they say, post the siege, pray for us. But once Yirmiyahu turns to them and says, I can't pray for you, I think it's in Lamad Zion, he says, I can't pray for you. What you need to do, is to change, you need to give in to Babel, you need to accept part of your punishment, and then you can stay in Israel, and you need to change your ways, you need to be just. And once they hear that message again, they turn off. And what they decide, so what do you do? They have this dilemma, your miyahu's nebut are playing out, they don't want to accept it, but they still have to face your miyahu and all his prophecy. So the solution is, let's put your in jail. 'Cause if we put Yirmiyahu in jail, we won't have to face him every day. We won't have to think about his call to change that I can't really avoid anymore because his dire nibuod of what will happen if we don't are actually happening. So if you take a look for a minute at um at the sort um to Lamid Lamidali? Take a look at Lamedet for a minute. Um, this is in the 10th year of Tzidkiyahu, okay? So this is, remember, Asar B'tebed happened in the 9th year. So the city is under siege already. And how are the people responding to this? this still, there's still hope. It's, you know, hope that what they can accomplish is getting smaller, but they can they don't have to lose the land of Israel. So take a look here at these very powerful psukim. It says, So this came in the 10th year, of the king Zedekiah, Hashanah the Nebuchadnezzar. So now we're already counting from Nebuchadnezzar's time, the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. And what's happening at that time? Chel At this point, we know the siege has already begun, and the Babylonians are surrounding and oppressing Jerusalem. So what are the people doing? Look at the contrast at the second part of the Pasuk. And Miyahu is in jail or in a detention camp in the house of the king. So the way that they dealt with Miyahu's Nebuot happening and still not wanting to change is by cutting him off. He needs to be jailed. Ashir Kilut Yahuda because Titkiahu put that put him in jail. Lemur, this is what Sitkiahu said to him, Madua Atani Ba ko amar noten eta ir Why, Yermiahu Miahu, are you saying that I'm going to give over this city into the hands of the Babylonians and they'll conquer it? For these nivuot that are happening, they put him in jail. Vitzitkiahu Melchihuda Loimale Miyad Hakasim. Um, and this is the second part of his prophecy which explains why Tzidkiyahu felt so passionately about this. Because Yermiahu said that Tzidkiyahu himself will not be able to escape from the Babylonians ki <speaking in Hebrew> because Tzidkiyahu will be given over to the king of be- Babel, vdiber piv im piv, and Tzidkiyahu, the last king of Yehuda, of Judah, will speak Mouth to mouth with the King of Babylonia. You won't avoid this tidkiahu you won't escape. You will actually speak to the King of Babylonia when he captures you. The Eina et Eina Tirena, and you will look into his eyes. You will never get away. You will have to face him, you will have to speak to him, and you will have to stare into his eyes. And Yirmiyahu continues by saying, if you fight the Babylonians and refuse to accept the piece of your punishment, then this is what will happen to you. And it, instead of taking Yirmiyahu's message to heart, the response of Yirmiyahu and the people is to jail Yirmiyahu so that he's no longer able to reach the nation. So instead of finally accepting the situation and embracing change, the people choose to quite literally cover their eyes to what's going on and to live in a dream world that's no longer based in the reality of what's going on around them. And essentially, at this point, they give up their last chance for salvation. And I think the failure to see what's right in front of them is expressed so poetically in this Parsha, um, in this section, by the, um, the images. Because remember how we just read about the eyes? Eyes becomes a major theme, and see, is, is a major theme at the end this time period. Right? Tzidkiyahu, emphasizes, you, your eyes will look into the eyes of the king of Babylonia. Also, um, Tzidkiyahu's punishment, but right? he's not killed, right? He's captured by by Babylonia, and they gouge out his eyes. So there's this poetic justice in the fact of you were not able to see. So therefore, you will physically lose your sight, symbolizing the fact that you gave up your sight and your clarity, your ability, you were able to see what was really going on, you chose not to see, you actually will look into his eyes, and then he will take out your eyes. Right? And not only that, but the, certainly the milah hamancha, like the most recurring word, and um, in Yirmiyahu's retelling of the horban, is the verb, is is the ra'ah, sight. Sight comes up again and again, even in which is striking, by the way, because it's a nar- it's a, it's really, it's a narrative section. And you don't oh, you have milan mancha in narrative, but certainly in the prophetic pieces, milan mancha is striking. But here, even in the narrative sections, it just every pasuk has another reference to cite. Um, I think we even just saw one of them in Lamed Bet. Um, Solid, right where the, right where we saw that you will see him, and it just continues. If you read through the end of where Yahu describes the historical events that happened right before the Horban, um it's definitely a, a worthwhile read for today. Maybe you can't. Almost every every parak has multiple references to the idea of sight. That symbolically, what happened on Asar Batebe is that the people gave up their ability to see. They could have seen. They should have seen what was playing out around them, but we decided to blame ourselves. Right? So this I think brings us to the theme of Asarabate. Right? Because by the time we get to Shibasar Batamos, where the walls are breached, and certainly Tishab, to a certain extent the game is over. Um, and but at Asarabate, they still could have turned things around. We didn't have to lose the land of Israel. But by choosing to blind ourselves to the clarity of Asarabate, that was ultimately what sealed our fate. Um, now, psychologically, I think this always, always wonder, like, how is it you know, that they fell into this trap? And I think here again, it's always easy to say, them, them. But the, the, the psychological underpinnings of what made it happen, I think, are really true for us as well. So I just want to share with you two thoughts um, that I have about why this happened and how it was so easy, in a sense, for us to blind ourselves. Um, If you take a look at Source 9, which is from um, a very important book uh, by Heschel called The Prophets, where he discusses a lot of the underlying themes of prophecy in the prophetic books, Um, look what he says over here. He says, modern thought, and he's answering this question about how it's possible that when we're in a situation, we just don't see the clear answers. And later, in hindsight, everything seems obvious. But here's what he says. He says, modern thought tends to extenuate personal responsibility. Understanding the complexity of human nature, the interrelationship of the individual and society, of consciousness and the subconscious, we find it difficult to isolate the deed from the circumstances in which it was done. He said, it's hard for us to look at things um, sort of with real clarity, because we're always caught up in through sort of the mitigating factors that are going on at the same time. But n- new insight may obscure essential vision, right? We start to lose our essential vision and get caught up in um, other, um, other circumstances that help us stay in that denial. Um, and man's conscience is a great, this is a great line. A man's conscience grows scales, and right? it's not open anymore. Um, excuses, pretense, self-pity. So these are all the factors that lead us to this denial. Guilt may disappear. No crime is absolute. No sins devoid of apology. Within the limits of the human mind, relativity is true and merciful. Yet the mind's scope embraces but a fragment of society, a few instants of history, It thinks of what has happened and is unable to imagine what might have happened. So while they were experiencing this calamity, they didn't have what we have, which is being able to look at it you know, by taking a step back, and in that sense, having the essential vision. But here, when people are in the middle of a circumstance, so many other mitigating factors, you know, such as apologetics, self-pity, denial, come into play. A second thing I think that led the the people at that time into this trap of not seeing what was clearly in front of them, I think we can learn from this past week's parsha, right? Because the lesson of Yehuda in uh, the lesson of Yehuda in Parsha Va'yigash, right? The meaning of the name Yehuda is to admit, and it's so hard to admit, so hard for anybody to admit that they're wrong and take responsibility. And that was Yehuda who was able to say, "What we did to Yosef was wrong. It's our responsibility." And now we have to step forward on Benjamin's behalf and change course. But that requires such a strength of character, and that's really what gave Yehuda the kingship, because that strength of character to be able to say, everything I did up until now was wrong, and now I'm ready to change course, is incredibly and exceedingly difficult. Okay, so what does this mean to us today, now, thousands of years later? So to every fast day, uh, to, to both of these fasts, all the fast days surrounding the korban, there's really two aspects because we have the aveilut, right, the mourning piece, and we also have the tshuva aspects. The what, what what can we change? What do we learn from this? And both of these exist. The Gemara actually spends a lot of time talking about the aveilut that on, a Sar, um, on days like Asar B'Tevi, there's a sense of that Tishabov mourning experience of what we've lost. Um, but the the Rambam certainly highlights the Chuva experience as primary even over the Avelot. Um, and, and that's halakhically carried over by the fact that we said Slichot this morning. Um, but if you take a look just I think it was the source before at the Rambam in Hilchotaniot um read the whole thing. It, I mean, yeah, number eight, thank you. Um, and the Rambam discusses this both in light of a new trouble that's coming on to the community and also in light of the past troubles, um, that the, the fast face that we have to commemorate the Korban. And the Rambam says, Mitzvah la min ha Torah, liz oak vilahariyab hachatzotrod, al koltzarat al hatzibor Right? And he says, it, it's a mitzvah from the Torah that, um, this is de'oraita, that when a terrible thing happens to the tzibor, we have to cry out, right, and use our hazotrod. I'm skipping to Allah Chabet where he explains the connection to chuva because he says the davar ze hu right this is what it means to do chuva am um, shed bizman shetavot sara viza kulah ha right at the time that a, a calamity comes and we cry out about it yedu hakol shebiglam saharaim huraham then we acknowledge the connection that this happened because of our sins. That there's a connection between what befell us and what's happening to us now and the suffering that we're in. I'm, I'm split, flipping to Halacha Gimel. About <speaking> Iloizaku, <in Hebrew> if we don't cry out, the Lo Ella Yomru Davar Iralanu, Vitsarazo Nikra so it, let's say we don't call out, and we say, you know, what happened to us is things that happen in the world, and it's just coincidence. This is how things play out. He says this is a way of cruelty. And it causes us to stick to our negative actions. He said then, if we don't do that chuba, then God has to send the message again with future, future tsarot. Right? And he cont- and, and he continues by proving this um, to other sukin. Um So the the Rambam source highlights, and he speaks about this also in terms of the communal fast, that the point of a fast day, the point of joining together as as a response to atzarah, is really a call to change. It's a call to reflection, a call to think about why did this happen, why did this come about, and what can we actively do now to make sure that this doesn't happen again, and to change. Um, now, although times have changed, we experience some of the same religious struggles that people have experienced at that time. Um, these are two that just were meaningful to me. Um, I think, first of all, we live at a time where, thank God, great, there's great religious observance, but I think the danger in that, which is such a wonderful thing, and we need to celebrate that, but the danger in that is always letting these issues sway us away from core issues of social justice that Yirmiyahu spoke about. And uh, a second, I think, relevant theme for me was that the denial that B'nai Yisrael experienced at that time is actually a common psychological reaction to avoiding a difficult issue. And as a community, and also as individuals, in big and in small issues, we don't want to fall into the very alluring trap of blinding ourselves to reality, because it's much easier to live in the illusion of, I'm right. So, to just um so to close, um, I just want to, I think this path, this explanation of the message of Asar B'teveh, right, the message of the clarity and the, the day that we kind of missed way back when, we missed the clear events unfolding in front of us, helps explain this connection of Asar B'teveh to two other events. Okay, first of all, Hanukkah, right, the usurping of the date, almost. Right, by making us not almost almost not notice the rosh Chodesh um, by hanukkah and the connection between hanukkah and adversative i think is not random because what's hanukkah Chanukah is the celebration of light over da- darkness and clarity over very confusing and appealing distortions so adversative is just that next wake up call to not fall into the trap hanukkah was a, t- a victory time a time of victory we celebrate the clarity Asar B'teveh was the time that we missed the message. So the two are very inherently connected. And also, Yom Kippur. right? We started out by looking at that source that made the connection between Asar B'teveh and Yom Kippur, that both fast days, if they were, if Asar B'teveh was to fall on Shabbat, like Yom Kippur, both fast days, we would fast, even if it was Shabbat. Now, we don't know practically how that would play out, but certainly it would be, because it doesn't happen, but if it happened, it would be something to talk about. Um, so here both places are referred to right with that language of the etam yom haza and I think there's a connection here too where Yom Kippur is the day of ultimate clarity it's the day where we have to step back from our own illusions and the obscurity that comes through the year and take an honest look at where we are an honest look at where we want to go so here again the goals, the tshuva process of Asar Bateve, I think also mirrors the challenge of the tshuva process on Yom Kippur so, Amir Tashem, let's make this day our own mini Yom Kippur of honest and clear reflection as we renew our focus on core values and Amir Tsashem, let's be to the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash. bekarov.